This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money Markets. I'm Dan from Shares. We've let Laura have a week off so she can catch up on her Games of Thrones box set. So instead, I'm pleased to bring back two of our podcast regulars, Mr. Tom Selby and Mr. Simon Mollica from AJ Bell. Hello. Hi there. This week, we're going to be talking about all things environmental, social and governance or ESG in the world of investment funds and the latest in the court case involving women hit by the rise in the state pension age. But first up, let's chat about what's been happening in the markets over the past week. Over to you, Dan. There's been loads going on. Really? yeah, I mean, people think it's we're in 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 a during our summer holidays, but mm. wow, there is a significant amount of corporate news. And um, so, on the commodities market, gold prices hit a new record high of uh, one thousand nine hundred eighty dollars. Uh, mm. This is against an ongoing backdrop of worries about coronavirus. Um, it hasn't really helped where we've had the UK impose quarantine on people coming back from Spain or, or traveling from Spain to the UK, um, France uh, and Austria as well. They've got um, cases ticking up again. So it, it, it's still this sort of uncertainty bubbling away. And um, so people who've been sort of allocating part of their sort of investment portfolio in gold, have, um, they've been, you know, they're having a quite a good time at the moment. Mm. But actually this, this sort of travel industry issue is, has been hit other parts of the, the stock market. Um, I did notice that TUI, EasyJet, and IAG, which owns British Airways, now lost nearly all, or, or perhaps all of their the gains that they've seen on the stock market since the March rebound. So, Crikey. Um, yes, I, th- I think initially people were, were you know, looked at the stock market crash and they went, hang on, I think that the world is being far too pessimistic mm. about the leisure industry. Um, so there's some, you know, people were buying, bidding up these shares in the, in the sort of airlines and um, tour or travel operators. And now it's like, well, hang on a minute. You know, if we if we're going to go away um, on holiday and then come back and have to stay at home again for fourteen days, is it worth going away? Mm. So I think there's got to be a lot of people who who just can't work from home. They need to be out outside. Uh, and so I think you know the stock market is now saying, well, yeah, okay, earnings are not going to recover as fast as we thought with some of these travel companies. And so um, this sector is you know, once again very much out of favour. So so. So, Tom, are you are you nipping abroad uh, so, in the yes, next couple yeah. of weeks? I was I was going to say, well, investors are going to need to prepare themselves for more of this volatility. And so, to answer answer, to answer your your question, I'm 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 due to me and my partner are due to go um, off on a walking holiday um, along the Italian Amalfi coast. Um, so we, we, we've had to we've had to switch it around slightly because we were supposed to be going through Siena. Um, but apparently, a couple of the hotels there aren't aren't allowing people um, people to to come in due to the due to the coronavirus. But we're not we're not due to go to Italy until early September. So from our from our point of view, there's a it, it feels at the moment like the the likelihood of that holiday happening has kind of got it went it went down initially during coronavirus and then. Recently, we've got, we've reached a point where we thought it looked like it was kind of a, a done deal that we'd be able to fly to Italy as the number of cases were coming down. But as as you're hearing news of possible second waves and countries having to enter enter lockdown again, it all feels 
quite uncertain. And I guess in a way that's the, the experience of a, of a lot of investors in the travel industry. Yeah. I mean, it's well, Simon, are you, are you jet setting anywhere this summer or are you, are you feeling a bit cautious about um, no, we're not. We've decided not to go anywhere this summer. Um, we had a couple of holidays, unfortunately, we missed during um, lockdown, but we thought we'd kind of put it off till next year, I guess. But having young kids was another excuse just, just not to go away and we'll probably look to go somewhere in England. But, you know, I think the markets are incredibly interesting at the moment. And, you know, Tom mm. cited the volatility nature. You know, they're clearly going to be very volatile going into the short term. And I guess we just need to remind investors that, you know, holding equity should always be a long term game. You know, it shouldn't be about trying to um, guess a binary outcome um, and trying to make a short term gain. So, you know, investors do have to be very careful if, if they're thinking um, with a short term mindset. I mean, the other situation we find ourselves regularly in is when there is bad news, um, it's for the economy or or the wider population it doesn't end up always being bad news for the stock market as central banks and governments rush back in to um to help the situation which we could see again which is why we very much got that that v-shaped recovery in asset uh, markets and capital markets around the world but again you know economies weren't certainly weren't going through a v-shaped recovery especially now with the with the um, second wave potential and the bad news around that. So it's always going to be very volatile for the short term, um, but I think people are best, you know, trying to assess their, their longer term um, outcomes and needs when, when they think of, of equities in, in this space. But yeah, I think leisure is going to be very difficult for the short term. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I was going to say, I was just going to say, sorry, Dan, that was an, an interesting point around um, short, short termism versus long termism and the kind of attempting to um, trade, trade your way through a period of such uncertainty. I, I am, um, well, Dan will know because I, I was in touch with him. One of my um, one of my old um, old school friends contacted me out of the blue, asking for um, an investment tip or otherwise on um, the the gym group. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I am not the person to go to for investment tips. But he was kind of clearly looking at this the 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 volatility that existed and the uncertainty that existed, and thinking there was potentially an an opportunity to, there to buy a an asset that he felt was um, mispriced at that at that point in time. So, I mean, do you think pe people need to be be careful when they're looking to to do things like that to to trade and to make marginal gains in a period where things are inherently so uncertain? I absolutely think they do need to be. Um, mm. These are binary outcomes that you know really aren't reflective of longer term earnings because you just can't forecast those earnings at the moment. And when we speak to a lot of fund managers on the institutional side, you know, I think more and more people talk about bottom up analysis rather than macro analysis, just, just generally. And that's because people do have that realization that reading the macro um, is just very difficult. And then reading the macro's impact on the stock market is even more difficult when you've got central banks and governments being much more active these days as well. So I think short-termism on individual stocks is a very, very difficult game mm. to play, and, and especially more so now, really. So Simon, you mentioned uh, a second ago about this V-shaped recovery, but um, you know, not all stocks are experiencing this big bounce back. And, and one of them that was reported um, this week is Greg's. So it's oh, my favorite. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you go back a year and everyone was in absolutely in love with this with this company and you know, hoovering up these uh, vegan sausage rolls. But, you know, as a business, I think it's finding it pretty tough um, in terms of the, sort of the new way that we have to live. Mm. It, it's very much relying on um, the commuter uh, sort of trade. So, you know, in a normal circumstances of going into work, you might pop in to get 
a coffee or something and then at lunchtime you can go and get your lunch from there and on the way home you might want to get a snack but um you know, clearly if you've got loads of people working from home it's it's really missing this this one of its key drivers another thing is people you know if they're going to go for a, to the high street perhaps do an afternoon shopping they might pop in for a cup of tea but again you know there's so many people nervous about going back to the shops at the moment that you just see it in its numbers it's and the way it's talking about still being quite cautious that um you know it is yes we've had a very bad time and the stock market's been pricing in negative news but um it's it, it didn't deliver enough that what the market wanted um hence why the shares have been weak yet again but on on you know another company in sort of the broader retail sector which is next actually came out and said well you know things are going better than we expected that that might be that its expectations were simply too low um, when it you know, gave some guidance back in April, but um, it, it, it's it's quite eye-opening, isn't it, to see which businesses um, managed to um, either transform or adapt during this time. I mean, clearly, no management in their right mind would ever have forecasted or had mm. any measures in place for a global pandemic on the type sort of um, scale that you know we we've recently seen. So I think you can forgive most company management um, for not being prepared but it is so interesting to see how people have adapted especially leisure and, and and restaurants i mean i i don't know about you two but i haven't really ordered much takeaway recently but um mm -hmm. in the very very recent term over the last week actually I've, I've started going back to takeaway and i recently ordered some takeaway sushi which was oh, yeah. a business in east quinston that actually opened their doors um to purely just takeaway they didn't open a restaurant um so it was it was interesting to see my own behavior change and you know companies are just going to have to adapt to that i think clearly that's going to be very hard for greg's um but what is interesting is when these types of businesses need to capital raise when they need to raise some money then that's the opportunity for a lot of people to i, I guess put some money into maybe some good investments um but it will take time to play out that way um but i think people will be very selective with capital raisings they won't they won't just be giving them to any old business no, I mean, also in the sort of the broader retail sector, we have Games Workshop has come out with some figures and, and it's seen a big jump in sales. It's definitely one of the beneficiaries of lockdown where uh, people stuck at home, um, you know, perhaps people who are, have been existing customers have been buying more of its products um, and you've got some you know, potentially new ones trying out, buying its little figures to paint. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's definitely sort of a divide between both Greg's and Games Workshop were over the years have been seen as fantastic businesses. Um, Greg's share price is struggling now because of short-term problems. Games Workshop shares are absolutely going through the roof. It's worth, the, the business is now valued at three billion pounds. The market's pricing on 11 times sales, 33 times pre-tax profit. I mean, this, this is wow. very punchy stuff. Um, so it, it, it seems that the market is perhaps being quite short-term at the moment by backing the, the obvious winners this year, um, and ignoring the ones that perhaps having short-term struggles, but um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think you're, I think you're right. But then the market always does what the market wants to do, and that's why people do have to be very careful. I mean, I think your your, your um, talk around some of those gaps, you know, clearly depending on if a second wave was to come quickly or not. I guess you know at some point that gap probably has to normalise. I mean, tech stocks. I think the four biggest tech stocks in the world now equal the same market cap of the Japanese market, the third largest economy in the world. So, you know, there's clearly some things there that just aren't 
correctly valued um, and they, they could normalize um, or they could not, I guess, depending on, on the environment and how quick things get back to normal. But I guess in normal market conditions or a normal economic scenario, maybe we wouldn't have such large gaps. So, you know, maybe some normalization in the future will occur which is when possibly people get caught out. I mean, we were talking about gold earlier and gold being on highs. And, you know, you, you tend to see this behavioral attitudes time and time again, when an asset class like gold is suddenly priced very high and there's lots of momentum and you get a fueled um, kind of talk around this momentum gathers even, even more, which then pushes people more into that asset class, which means there's demand supply imbalances get even larger. And then that pushes valuations to anomalies that actually in a normal time, people might step back and think that just looks very odd. So um, things can correct very sharply. So people do have to be careful. And I think they still need to keep an eye on valuation. So it's not just about being careful of avoiding businesses that are having a very tough time, but actually possibly also keeping an eye on businesses that look like they're doing very well if they're getting slightly ahead of themselves. So, Dan, I understand there's been some good news for investors who rely on their stocks, funds and bonds for income. So tell me what's happened. Yeah, there's, I think there's the start of a really, really interesting trend here. Um, and you've seen it over the last few weeks. It's companies are starting to reinstate their dividend payments. Now, this, I think, is quite surprising because a couple of months ago, loads of companies were sort of saying, we're not sure what's going on. We need to preserve our cash. So... We're going to pause dividends for a while. And I honestly didn't expect them to start mm. resuming them until you know, very late this year or more realistically next year. But you know, in the last, you know, so the last few weeks, we've seen um, the packaging company Smurfit Kappa, um, Devro, Sabre Insurance, Kanos, Nichols, uh, Land Securities, Focusrite. And there's more. They're all come out saying like, yeah, we're really feeling a lot more comfortable now. Um, we're going to sort of either start paying dividends now or, you know, we're giving you a, a sort of clear guidance later this year when we do our next set of results. That's when we're saying we're going to be telling you how much we're going to be paying. Uh, and it's brilliant. I think it's, it's, it shows a positive um, signal from management that they've got a grip on their cash flow. They know what they're going to be doing in this sort of new environment. That's reassuring for investors. So uh, you know, it's nice to have a bit of positive news. I mean, would, 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 there be, would there be any fears that there's any, um, any level of hubris among management there that they're getting back to dividends so, so quickly? Or do you, do you just think that they've had time to assess the, the position of the economy and the position of their businesses and have been able to, to adjust accordingly? Yeah, I, I, think, I don't think anyone in a boardroom would want to risk restarting dividends and then have to sort mm. of say three months later, damn it, we got it wrong. We're going to have to change our mind again. They would just look so stupid. So I don't think any of these decisions have been made lightly. Um, and I think that, you know, clearly there are, there's, there's plenty of uncertainty still. So you know, there is always a risk that this can happen. Um, but I think, I think that it does send very strong signal that they are on top of things. Um, and they, the business is running efficiently and well. And I think that's, that's good. And, you know, it, in the world of income, it's not mm. just uh, investors in individual stocks have been, um, you know, gone through sort of challenging times. If you've been invested in an income fund, you've also seen, um, potentially seen you know, some of these, these funds come out and say, well, we're not generating as much money from our portfolio as we were. So we might have to pay slightly less dividends, uh, which is terrible. And there's actually been some, uh, an interesting move in the investment trust space where um, Murray Income Trust 
says it's going to merge with Perpetual Income and Growth Trust. Um, so this is perhaps better known as PLI, you know, which is what it's sort of code for the for the trust. Now this this you know, Perpetual Trust used to be run by Mark Barnett. Um, actually, we haven't seen many mergers in the investment trust space for quite a while, but this one makes makes a lot of sense. Murray Income Trust is um, been running for for a long time. It does have some similar holdings like British American Tobacco and Roche, but it tends to be a bit more international focused businesses, um, whereas the, you know, the perpetual one is sort of more UK focused ones and it holds things like Tesco and Next. But um, Barnett used to work with Neil Woodford many years ago. Um, and it's interesting that the two, the two figures have sort of combined again in, in this here because Murray Income Trust is run by Aberdeen Standard and recently they took over the Woodford Income Focus Fund, what, what, which was sort of the, the lesser known of the two income funds that um, Neil Woodford was looking after. Um, so really, they, it's kind of now got the same team running all of these products. Um, you know, and clearly, there's going to be a lot of focus on them to, to deliver um, a good return. But actually, you know, they're going to have big scale now. So if you're combining two investment trusts, um, Market cap will be nearly a billion pounds, so you would hope that you're going to have um, some efficiencies of scale there. Potentially get these the, the charges down for investors. So um, I wonder whether we're going to see more of this. So it, 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 it better to have scale and, and pull forces together than have lots of little tiny things, um, you know, trust rumbling on. Okay, so the WASPI campaign is back in the news with a large number of women nervously awaiting a court of appeal judgment. So, Tom, give us the backstory and explain what might happen next. Yeah, so you'll have to bear with me, Dan, because as, as always with, with pensions stuff that I talk about, there's a little bit of history. Um, but um, let me just quickly go through that. So the, the, the WASPI issue um, relates to increases in the state pension age that were first set out in um, uh, Pensions Act way back in 1995, which makes me feel incredibly old because I can still remember 1995, although I wasn't, I wa I wasn't tracking the, the movements in the pensions, state pension age at that time because I was nine years old. Um, so the 1995 Pensions Act um, uh, set in legislation plans to equalise the state pension age for men and women at age 65 by 2020. So that process was due to start in 2010 and then end by 2020. Um, subsequently, in 2011, there was another Pensions Act which accelerated those plans. So, increased the state pension age, uh, increased equalised the state pension age for men and women at 65 by 2018 rather than 2020. And then the state pension age has since been rising for both men and women to age 66 by October 2020, so October this year, in a couple of months' time. Um, I'm sure most people listening to this will have heard of the WASPI campaign. There's also a second campaign called the, the Back to 60 campaign, which has spent um, a lot of time and energy and has gained actually quite a lot of attention um, attempting to get, uh, get the government to reverse that decision. Um, the argument being that lots of women in particular born in the 1950s saw their state pension age increase, increase quite dramatically. So by up to six years in total um, without being given 
sufficient notice. Now, the, the notice point, um, when I, when I, obviously I said, I said those, the, the majority of these changes were set out in 1995, but the, the, the government of that time and subsequent governments have been criticised by select committees for failing to properly communicate the fact these changes were coming down the track to these women. So um, the campaign's built up head of steam, which led to the case being heard at the High Court in 2019 and the, the campaign groups and the lawyers representing them argued that the, um, the, the increases in the state pension age amounted to age and sex discrimination and um, they also brought forward the case that the, 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 government had, uh, the government had allegedly failed to inform them properly of the fact that the state pension age was increasing. So the court in that, in that original case, so in the High Court case, um, the claims were dismissed on all grounds um, and then recently we've had the case being brought in front of the Court of Appeal so the same arguments being brought but just to um, different judges so over two days those arguments were heard last week um, we now have to sit and wait to find out what the what the ruling of the judges will be last time will be last time in the in the High Court it took about three or four months um, for a for the, the decision to throw out the case on all on all on all grounds to be to be made, and so we can expect a bit a, a few more months waiting before the these women can have some um, clarity over their position. And so, what um, do you what what do you think what do you think will be the outcome? It's too hard. Oh, to I, I mean, who, who, it's all, it's always difficult to second guess. Um, as I, as I said, the first court um, found. Uh, didn't find in favour of the of the women um, in on all three counts, given that it's the same um, arguments going in front of the judges. Again, it's hard to see, frankly, um, that um, another set of judges will necessarily find anything different. But stranger things have happened. Um, actually, the government recently lost a different court case in relation to um, to pensions, so in relation to public sector pensions, where um, they introduced reforms um, to public sector schemes designed to to save money, but they had um, they 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 allowed a transition period for people who were towards um, who were within ten years of retirement who were allowed to keep benefits under the old scheme. Um, a court a court found that 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 amounted to age discrimination, and so the government's faced a £17 billion bill to right that wrong. So it wouldn't be, the, wouldn't be the first time that the government had lost in court in a pensions case in relation, in relation to age discrimination. Indeed, it wouldn't be the first time the government had lost in court this year um, in a case um, like that. But we'll have, to, we'll have to wait and see. I wouldn't want to second guess. Um, in terms of the, the impact, the impact could be huge. So if, um, if a court ruled that, the, that full restitution needed to be needed to be provided to all the women affected by the decision then um, Guy Opperman, the pensions minister in response to a question last um, year in the House of Commons um, estimated the cost at being somewhere in the region of 215 billion pounds um, in today's coronavirus world over 215 billion pounds I suppose doesn't sound too ridiculous but I think any government that was having to take on such a bill at any time would um, would be making some pretty serious um, spending decisions and uh, it, would, it would, I mean, of, of all the times to face something like that now would probably be um, the worst time certainly in, in, in living memory for a government to have to deal with 
a problem like that. Um, I think away, away from the specifics of the court case, and like I say, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see exactly what comes comes out in the final verdict. I think um, once again, this is a it's a this is a reminder that the the state pension, both in terms of the state pension age and the amount that you can expect to receive from the state, is is only going in one direction, and that is uh, further away. So we've had these increases in the state pension age to 66. There are, there are state pension age increases pending to happen by the end of this decade. So by 2028, the state pension age is due to go up to 67. By the end of the following decade, the state pension age is due to go up to 68. And if we continue to see increases in life expectancy, then I fully expect the state pension age to continue rising so that it doesn't become so unaffordable. And the obvious implication for most people from that is that they need to make a plan today and set aside more themselves to make sure that they can end up having the retirement that they want to have because the the role of the state in providing income while still valuable the state pension the flat rate state pensions worth about nine thousand pounds a year so that's not a trifling sum but the point in in time in which you're going to receive it is being pushed backwards and frankly there's no guarantee of what the state pension system is going to look like in 20, 30, 40 years time when lots of people will finally come to be drawing on the money. So many people seem to be looking for ESG related investments. The world's paying more attention to environmental, social and governance issues. So Simon, investors got a lot of options to choose from in this space. And why is it that ESG is now so much in demand? Well, I think investment options are increasing um, nearly nearly monthly. Um, but maybe just to backpedal a little bit and just go through what ESG exactly is and maybe what it isn't. Um, so, you know, I think ESG as an acronym is, is pretty well known these days. So it stands for um, Environmental, Social and Governance. Um, really, this type of investing, um, this ethical investing is centred on a couple of different issues really, but at a very high level, it's all about either um, avoiding um, companies or industries that are seen to be harmful to human life and the planet, or alternatively investing in companies and industries that are actually beneficial to human life um, and the planet. So that's kind of very le high level. Um, and broadly these days, what we see is ESG being kind of on a um, diagram in terms of a different type of spectrum. So starting with traditional investing to, to the left, and that's very much not really involving much ESG criteria and your normal kind of financial uh, metrics, et cetera. So no real ESG criteria, um, all the way through to, to the right with um, impact probably being the most um, greenest as such, which is really all about um, investing in companies which uh, deliver or um, attempt to deliver a positive societal benefit. And then in the middle of that, I think you have um, ethical, which is broadly a term um, that is probably the most um, widely used for exclusionary, so just next to it in um, traditional. So it's really probably the, possibly the easiest way of um, reflecting ESG in that you just want to avoid bad industries. And then moving on to the right, responsible and sustainable, really filling up that that spectrum. Um, so I think kind of maybe one thing to talk about is the main issue with ESG and I think the real issue here is that there's no real definition. I've spoken through high level what, what it maybe it means to us all but actually um, I think 
the minutial detail of ESG means a lot of different things to, to many different people, um, which is a real difficulty in, in how to define it and actually how to measure it as well. Um, it is very difficult, um, particularly when you're looking at, um, I mean, a really good example of this is the um, ESG ratings that we're seeing more and more delivered by MSCI and the likes of Sustainalytics. And actually, if you look at the correlations between the different companies, it just shows you that the methodology in terms of rating a company in terms of ESG standards is widely different because their ratings come out very differently. Whereas if you compare that to something like a credit rating, whereas the credit rating agencies all broadly seem to be fairly well aligned and really their ratings in that space correlate very heavily because there is a strong methodology as to how to look into a company and, and highlight whether you think it's um, credit um, worthy or not. Um, so it is very difficult um, defining exactly what ESG really means. Um, now, I think going forward, there is going to be much more standardization. Um, they're looking to um, standardize a lot more um, ESG at every really turn in the point here. Um, and, you know, I think that means better measurability as well. Um, but I guess the challenges there come that maybe then it means um, there's less flexibility for fund managers to interpret what ESG means um, company by company. So then possibly you do get the issue that there's a smaller opportunity set that everyone starts to chase. I was going to say, it, it, does, it does seem like fund managers are already chasing the same group of stocks. Like certainly if I, if I was, you know, I've looked at various ESG related or ethical funds and you see some names just cropping up time, time and again. And you wonder whether um, the demand to buy these stocks is just artificially you know, pushing up the price. It's not, it doesn't actually reflect that these businesses are doing something, uh, you know, th th perhaps they're, they're growing earnings at the same rate that the share price is going up. Um, it, it's, you know, is, is it sort of a danger that we're getting into a situation where um, at some point, um, you know, these stocks might sort of move back to their fair valuations again and, um, and that people putting money into these ESG funds are not going to be doing as well as they thought they might. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. With any trend um, and the flow of money is clearly going to cause imbalances. Um, and there's a lot of talk about ESG now being seen as a positive alpha contributor, whereas I think primarily in its earlier days, um, actually it's not a new concept. It was um, very much um, demanded by charities and religious movements um, back in the day. So it's definitely not a new concept. Um, but I think you're right that clearly if there's a, a big weight of money flowing into a, into a smaller selection of stocks, then yes, that's absolutely going to push up their ratings purely just on that. Um, but when um, academics start to study whether there's an alpha contributor now from ESG, I think it's broadly really discussed a lot these days and actually nearly assume that there, there probably is some kind of extra component, whereas historically it was nearly the opposite, that people would be seen to have to forego some of their total return to be able to do good um, in investing in, in ethically related companies or industries. So I think it's definitely changing. Um, I do think there's a little bit of dangers in that attitude slightly though, because being able to isolate the ESG factors um, is incredibly difficult actually. And really proving that it has been an alpha generator, um, I think that's very hard to conclude really. Um, I mean, if we point to this year, clearly, a lot of ESG strategies and funds have done very well. But actually, you could argue 
um, is that because ESG itself as a factor is delivering, or is that actually um, components of the market that are seen widely as um, non-ESG just not delivering? So, you know, if I look back a bit longer term, maybe at three years, if we look at the MSCI um, All Countries World Index and just separate separate out tobacco stocks, and also maybe in a second kind of um, iteration, separate oil and gas. Well, over the last three years, those sectors have de delivered very poorly against the broader MSCI All Countries World Index. So, so what that tells you really is if you took those subsets of groups out of your investment opportunity set, then yes, it would be a lot easier to be able to outperform benchmarks, which I definitely think is one hand of, of, of what we've definitely seen. So I think the conclusion that ESG has you know, delivered um, superior alpha is, is probably um, a little bit naive without a lot more digging into that really. Um, on, on the other point of actually whether they are all following the same set of groups. Um, I think this goes back to my original point about standardization because we're not really there yet. So I still think a lot of fund managers are able to read into ESG um, and read into what kind of beliefs they have and match them up the companies very differently. So if I consider some of the newest funds we've added onto favorite funds, um, one being um, the Lion Trust Sustainable Future Global Growth Fund. And if I compare that to another fund on favourite funds, uh, Stuart um, Investors uh, Sustainability Worldwide, actually the commonality between those two funds is very low at, th at around 3%. Um, so actually that tells you that those two funds aren't actually chasing the same set of stocks. However, they do have very, very different philosophies. Um, and you know, clearly in favourite funds, we are trying to offer breadth and depth to, to the investors. So, um, you know, I, I do think you can, you can invest in different types um, of ESG related funds, which offer you something different. But broadly, yeah, I, I think they do um, ignore large hosts of the index, which really does put, put them into, into a constraining set of stocks in, in broad terms, yes. It's probably just worth pointing out, Simon was just mentioning favourite funds. He's actually referring to the AJ Bell favorite funds list just in case you're wondering what what on earth he was talking about then so <laughs> um with so to assignment with with um esg but i mean a lot of people sort of say yes you know it, can i make money from this area but are there any examples of esg funds where it's been quite miserable in terms of performance um th th there's definitely a couple of outliers i think as we were previously discussing, I think generally it's been good performance from ESG. There's a couple of outliers. Um, there's a couple of funds that I know that um, are ESG funds, but actually they've focused on value as a style. Um, and clearly we all know that value has had a very, very poor journey over the last um, three to five years and even longer. So those types of funds actually that um, focused on um, more value orientated type stocks have struggled. Um, I think that's true. Um, but broadly, no, I'd, I'd say um, you probably wouldn't be too disappointed um, if you'd been investing in the last couple of years with an ESG uh, mindset. Um, but I think, you know, there are going to be some issues that come out from this and things that really worry me and, and the risks in investing in this sector. Um, you know, I think the term greenwashing comes to mind. Absolutely. When a company possibly portrays itself in a better light, um, being more green, um, maybe that its emissions are being reduced um, over time. Now that portraying itself as a better company than actually it is, is a real danger. Um, and you know, that's what they really mean by greenwashing. Um, so you know, there is definitely um, 
disappointment to be had in the future. Um, and I think as this sector grows more and more, then, then we will start to see things come out um, in the wash, pardon the pun there. And are we seeing, in just terms of new fund launches, are we seeing them mostly in sort of actively managed funds or are there sort of new indices being created? So we, we're seeing sort of ETFs that um, offer sort of a, a passive way of getting exposure to the ESG space. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really interesting question, Dan, actually. Um, so I think, you know, broadly, we're seeing a lot of money flow into ESG and you can absolutely see that um, with the fund launches this year. Um, there is more um, assets invested in ESG actively, but actually the growth in passive is a much higher trajectory than active at the moment. So there is more and more flowing into passive, but from a lower base um, at this point. But you're absolutely right, indices are getting... Um, new indices are getting created with an ESG um, title or tag in them. So um, we will see more ESG indexes, um, which you know probably means more passive type mandates that will be following those ESG indices. It, 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 it seems to me that um, over the last couple of years, a lot of people have been focused on the E side, so the, the sort of environmental. Um, you know, social is definitely becoming more important and governments even more so. I wonder whether it's actually we're going to see a split where you'll see um, a fund or, or, or a passive or active trying to um, just focus on, on sort of not all of it. It seems to be too much to take in at once, really. You're going to see much more focused, much more niche um, products. Do you think that's, that, that might be the case? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I think you've hit the nail on the head in some ways down there. Um, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, this is really is the confusion um, at the moment in that it's so wide. There's so many things to look at. You know, there's so many subsectors, so many factors beneath all E, S and G to look at. And that's why um, that you can have a variety of different types of funds, actually, because there's just a dramatic um, different type of interpretation on all the different E, S and G. So yeah, I think you probably do get more specialisms. Um, and these launches of specialist type funds, I think as um, not only as fund groups come to um, deliver them, but I think actually as investors demand them as well, the more and more we uncover about ESG and philosophically think about our own beliefs, I think we all probably go off in tangents and actually understand what we want from these types of investments. So governance is an interesting one. I think that's something that's always really been done. A lot of fund managers we speak to, whether they focus on ESG or not, I think they've always had governance factors within their bottom-up stock selection process. I think the real reason ESG probably comes a bit of an inflection point at the moment is more about the E side, so more about the environment. So much these days is being spoken about climate change. Um, you know, we've had things in the last couple of years like the Paris Agreement, where um, in this century they want to limit um, the temperature rises to 2%, and really they'd like to aim for 1.5%. And, and there's been a lot of buy-in by all United Nations countries to do that, which is you know, obviously setting regulation as well. And then there's also the sustainability development goals, um, trying to eradicate poverty, um, helping bring education into everyone's lives. So I think because of those focus on the environment, um, especially at this point, I think that's really why it's kind of thrusted into the limelight today because you've already got governance, that's been a tick, but actually it's the environmental angle which I think is really hitting today. And then I think the natural extension is probably more of a focus on social from that. Um, I mean, interestingly, 
a lot of the funds we talk to, I think they're more and more trying to align themselves to the SDGs, those sustainable development goals. There's 17 of them. And I think funds are trying to make ESG more measurable by aligning companies to either a goal or multiple types of goals so they can kind of prove or demonstrate the ESG exposure within their fund, um, which I think is really important for people to um, be able to really understand whether they are buying something that is either light touch ESG or actually ESG embedded into the whole fund. Um, because I do think, that, you know, as we spoke about some of the disappointments that will come from either greenwashing or people buying into a fund that maybe they didn't quite understand the extent of ESG within that capability. Um, so, you know, I think we're all finding our feet. I think the institutional world's doing a lot of work, um, which is great. I think as a retail um, investor, you're, you're probably scratching your heads at this point um, because it is quite difficult. Um, I think the information available to a retail investor is probably a bit less than the institutional world. Um, it's changing. Um, so for example, um, a lot of the fund groups that have ESG um, funds, produce something called an impact report, which is all about demonstrating the measurability of ESG in the fund. Now, I've been speaking to a few groups lately, and actually those impact reports, um, they're fairly new, but actually they're only really available to the institutional investor. Now, that's not obviously true in every case, but a lot of the comments I got was, we're trying to make this retail friendly. So I think those types of reports will come through, um, but it will take time. But I think that will be really helpful to the end retail investor being able to understand the ESG and actually analyze a fund a little bit better. Um, but let's not forget, there's a lot of data being captured in um, company reports. So, um, you know, that's very accessible for all. Um, you can easily um, go onto a company's website, look at their last reports, and they'll report on lots of ESG metrics. Um, not always, not all companies are very good at reporting a disclosure, but I guess that would be a good flag as to whether you think a company takes ESG um, seriously or not. So lots to consider in the world of ESG, and I think it's developing really, really quickly at this kind of exciting inflection point. Thanks a lot. That was absolutely fascinating. I felt like a, I felt like a, a, a school child sat on the sidelines there just trying to take it all in. I thought that was a, a brilliant little section there. And I'm... Um, Look forward to see how the debate moves on as we go through what has been one of the weirder years, I think, of um, most people's lives. Um, so thanks a lot for, to everyone for listening this week. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, the iPhone podcast app, or on Podbean, and you just need to search for Money and Markets. Make sure you tune into the next episode in a week's time. Until then, thanks very much and goodbye. See you later. Thanks very much. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.